Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll be discussing the Downing Street Garden Party, life after COVID, the lab leak theory, and whether it's racist to call a black person eloquent. So this week, evidence emerged of yet another lockdown-busting garden party in Downing Street. This is probably the government's lowest point yet, Mm. I would say. Boris Johnson is really on the rocks, very struggling to fend off the accusations of rule-breaking, struggling to account for um, his behaviour. Tom, what have you made of it? No, you're right. I think it feels like the wheels are starting to come off at this point. I mean, we've been treated to sort of one scandal after another, COVID rule-breaking related or not over the course of the past few months. But I think this one feels very different. Mm. I think it even feels different from the other rule-breaking scandals that have happened so far, which were becoming increasingly tiresome, borderline, a question of a Zoom quiz here or a few drinks at your desk there. This feels a little bit different, I think, because of the fact that it was in the middle of the first lockdown when not only were the restrictions so tight, but also there was so much kind of fear, you know, in the population and concern and all the rest of it. You know, the fact that this was kind of prearranged, that it was basically just sort of piss up in the garden that Boris Johnson definitely attended it himself, that whilst he claimed at PMQs this week that it was a work event, I mean, he brought his wife along to it for mm. some reason. So all of these things just seem to be a kind of insult to our intelligence. And just the details, you know, the fact that 40 minutes before this thing kicked off, you had Oliver Dowden doing the number 10 briefing, reminding people that they could only meet one person outside. I mean, this is just taking everyone for fools at this point. Now, this kind of lockdown rule moralism which the media have been particularly gripped by, um, is something that hasn't really affected us. It takes a lot for us to condemn COVID rule breaking, but there just comes a point where you feel like this is just holding people in contempt right now. Yeah. Uh, I think we've reached that point. You know, a couple of days afterwards, Johnson was giving one of these press conferences where one member of the public asked what she should do because she keeps coming across people meeting bunches of people in the park. And he said that she should try to confront them or call the police. Yeah. You know, there's just a point at which this becomes incredibly galling and i think it also speaks to just the contempt that the government and their rules held us in because they knew even back then that having people around for socially distanced drinks particularly amongst youngish and healthyish people was no big deal but they wouldn't let us do that yeah because the panic was of course they get too carried away they won't remember there's a pandemic on we can't trust them. So I think it just becomes another example of that and i think you know those plunging approval ratings labor's got its highest poll lead for um, since 2013. I mean, it really does feel like this is incredibly serious. And without wanting to try and make any predictions, it's hard to see how Johnson himself can recover from this at this point. Yeah. Ella, what have you made of the attempts by Boris to sort of wriggle out of this? I mean, first, there was a whole day where they, the government was essentially saying, well, let's defer to this investigation, mm-hmm. which, you know, was absurd. We know they were there mm-hmm. and they were saying, we want someone to investigate whether we were there. And now this kind of excuse, oh, I thought it was a work event you know, coming to a party accidentally almost. What do you make of that? Well, that non-apology was, like, you know, some people have commented about this on Twitter, the most lawyered piece of text you could ever read. Every single word was chosen very specifically, you know, the use of the words implicitly. I implicitly thought this was a work event or whatever it was. It's so snakish. It's mm. really, uh, you know, Tom's right. It's taking us for fools. And it's, I th- go as far as to say it, it's a kind of barefaced lie because if you have a situation in which 
you know, someone so senior as the sender of that email could send around an email, not just like gossip goes around the office and you hear there's a party or you hear that people are going to go out for a cigarette and a, and a drink in the garden sure. or something, un, you know, not formal like that, but an actual invite sent out to a hundred people. Uh, you know, if you know that that's, even if Boris Johnson wasn't the orchestrator of that event, you know that that's happened within your workplace. You have, you know, there are, there's no ground for you to stand on. Um, and I don't necessarily, you know, I don't think a grovelling apology from Boris Johnson or even a resignation would satisfy me at this point. Because I think that while I am furious with the um, Conservative Party, and I think it's disgusting that they were, you know, celebrating the fact that police officers were driving across Hackney Downs where I live with a loud hailer shouting at people, go home. You know, people who were sat alone mm. reading a book in the sunshine, trying to find a bit of joy in what was a very miserable situation. But I think I'm even angrier with the Labour Party and the Lib Dems coming in now and trying to suggest that they have the moral high ground in relation to this because everyone seems to have forgotten that the, you know, the terrible thing is not that Boris Johnson and Carrie went to a party in a garden. The terrible thing was that, as you say, Tom, we were unnecessarily all living through mm. this fear and anxiety that had been pumped out from government. I mean, the crucial point was, you know, at, you know, in the 20th of May, lots of us still didn't know what was going on. I mean, the fear was genuine. Yeah. We didn't have all the data. We didn't, certainly we didn't have the vaccine. We didn't have any of the things we have today. And so it was quite a frightening time. But so much much of the messaging coming out of government was saying the reason we need to be severe is because we can't really trust you. You know, like mm -hmm. the reason we need to put in all these crazy restrictions, like, you know, have the Derbyshire police running around arresting people on mountainsides and yeah. flying drones yeah, over people is not because the virus is really dangerous when you're sat alone on a bench, but because we have to set this kind of blanket rule, otherwise the public will go crazy. And the Labour Party in particular not only went along with that, but actually pushed the government time and again to go further, to bring in more restrictive policies. And so the idea that Keir Starmer and uh, members of his cabinet can now get up and kind of smirk and attack the government as if they're speaking on behalf of the public, I think that boils my blood more yeah. than, than um, yeah, as Tom says, yet another scandal of yet another party in number 10. At this point, they were probably doing it all the time. I mean, mm. you end up feeling a bit so cynical. Far, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to the government, so. I mean, the media and the opposition have been using this as an opportunity to remind people of the privations of lockdown. We've been reminded of the stories of socially distanced funerals, people not being able to see dying relatives. But I mean, feels a bit cheap, doesn't it, Tom? Especially when, you know, all of those people supported the rules that allowed that to happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, as ever, they're upset about the rule breaking and a sense of alleged sort of fairness rather than the obvious inhumanity of the rules themselves. I mean, people not being allowed to spend a close relative's dying moments with them for what the fear they give that person COVID. I mean, it's yeah. just ridiculous when you really think about it. Um, so, you know, socially distanced funerals where very few people are able to attend these kind of incredibly tight restrictions all of the school stuff you know i think as someone's pointed out you know back in that period there was all this kind of nervousness about letting primary school children go back such was the level mm. of kind of threat and on certain restrictions you almost see it piece by piece people say you know in retrospect the school thing was crazy or this was really damaging and yet um there's still a lot of people who still not really necessarily making the connection i think that's one thing that could be a bit of a um danger is that again the obsession with rule breaking just sort of force fields the rules themselves from scrutiny but i think there is an element of people waking up to it. At the same time, I think it's the rule breaking itself is still feels significant, I guess, because 
a lot of what we talked about so far was people in public life kind of bending or breaking the rules, either in a way that kind of everyone did or a kind of sense of um, it was hard not to after a certain period of time, or there were things that people could understand, or they were kind of individual. But they're just there's something about this government, this alleged people's government, mm. you know, locking everyone down and then starting to throw parties, which just has this kind of Versailles feel to it, <laughs> which I think is important and, and shouldn't escape anyone's notice. But I completely agree, Ella, about this point about the, the, those rules being purposely ridiculous. I mean, it's that whole kind of, if we give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And it's what is so strange about that is that it flies in the face of what happened throughout the pandemic. Yeah. You know, people locked themselves down before there was a lockdown, you know, all the mobility data plunges. Remember when we reopened in July 2020, there was all this talk from police and NHS leaders that they were preparing for like New Year's Eve on speed and it's mm-hmm. going to be, there's just going to be this kind of wave of drunkenness and violence and then probably COVID as a result of that. None of that actually materialised. All these really stupid rules like you need to eat when you go to the pub, which is purely bred of a kind of sense of if we just let them go to the pub, they're just going to get smashed yeah. and kiss each other. And then this is going to be disastrous. <laughs> Lick strangers. Lick strangers. Kind of social distancing will break down. You know, stuff like at various points, you were allowed to meet people outside, but not in your own garden for mm. fear of what they go and use the toilet. Like it, this kind of like really persnickety, almost like paternalism was bred of contempt in the end of the, at the end of the day, but one that completely wasn't earned because people did take this pandemic seriously. So you just come to the conclusion that whilst we do need to focus on the rules, and getting rid of them, and having a proper reckoning with the past two years, because there's going to be an awful lot of people who are going to try and rewrite history, mm. um, who will just pretend that they were aware of these problems to begin with, um, or just try and ignore a proper discussion about the role that various people have played in bringing about maintaining lockdown and giving it almost kind of completely perfect moral legitimacy, which is always quite strange. But at the same time, I think there is really something to be said about this government and how despite claiming to be different, has revealed itself in quite a profound way to be as contemptuous of ordinary people as any of its predecessors, Mm. really. I don't think that should escape our attention either. We at Spiked are always looking to expand our knowledge, to learn something new and to get to grips with all the madness that's happening in the world around us. That's one of the many reasons we love Wondrium. Wondrium is the place for everyone who's ever wondered about anything. With the end of the pandemic in sight, we've been thinking about what makes a health crisis a crisis. When should we listen to experts and when should we push back against them? And of course, there's the role of the media that is always worth interrogating. One programme that really gets to grips with these subjects is The Skeptic's Guide to Health, Medicine and the Media on Wondrium. The series is presented by Dr. Roy Benarock, who over the course of 24 episodes gives you all the tools you need to challenge the media's fear-mongering and its promotion of quackery. Dr. Benarock explores a whole range of medical controversies, from alternative medicine to ideas around good fats and bad fats, and he takes a look at the opioid crisis that America is currently mired in. It's a fascinating series, and we think you'll love it too. Wondrium's vast curated library covers just about every subject. Science, history, music, language, travel, religion, health, business, and on and on and on. Its teachers, professors, and experts will inspire you to keep on learning new things every day. It's so easy to watch and listen to Wondrium's programs. I turn on Wondrium at home to watch on my computer, and then I can pick up where I left off on my phone by using the Wondrium app. Wondrium really is the ideal learning companion. If I know Spike's listeners, I know you're curious people who are always looking to learn new things, so you're definitely going to love Wondrium. 
So check out The Skeptic's Guide to Health, Medicine and the Media, and then have a look at the thousands of other videos Wondrium has to offer. Right now, Spiked's listeners can get a special free 22-day trial offer to celebrate the new year. To get it, you need to sign up through our special URL, which is wondrium.com slash spiked. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. That's wondrium.com slash spiked. Start learning today. We should talk a bit about the current uh, COVID situation. It feels as if, or it's, it, looking at the data, it seems as if a lot of people were saying that the Omicron wave has peaked. Um, it's nothing close to what the sage <laughs> advisors were, were projecting. And we've done that without restrictions. There's hope that even the plan B restrictions might be lifted um, towards the end of the month. The isolation period has been cut. But are we really out of the woods yet in terms of this kind of these restrictions on liberties, do you think, on the the broader kind of culture that has turned against freedom? I think we're actually in a really weird stage of limbo where almost everyone now realises that Omicron wasn't the deadly threat that it was going to be. It's kind of like people on the street and, you know, behind closed doors say, yeah, well, that wasn't really that much. Um, So there wasn't that much of a fuss. And you have sort of quiet changes in the tone of the way in which cabinet ministers talk about it. You know, this, there's lots of people now, MPs are saying we need to live with this virus. You've had that kind of phrase slowly coming back in. But the reason it's in limbo is because no one is, you know, despite the fact that we're supposed to be living in this time where facts are all important and data is king mm. and, you know, we're led by the science and all of that. There is a real reluctance among, you know, the government, but also other people, commentating scientists who have been sort of commentators on this throughout to to quite definitively say, looking at the period of December to now, we can, we're relatively confident that this thing isn't what we thought it was going to be. You know, lo, you know, God forbid they say we were wrong. Certainly mm. sage scientists say we were wrong about predicting that there would be 6,000 deaths a day. And and make clear the distinction between cases and deaths, because I think that's the most important thing that Omicron has provided. The, you know, the uh, knowledge of why an increase in case rates is different to an increase in death rates. That's why Delta was very different to Omicron. And the problem is, if you re- if you remain in that limbo, you never get to hold to account government restrictions, which are political restrictions yeah. rather than scientific necessities. We still have things happening, for example, in care homes where people are still not allowed to see their relatives, you know, freely. It's still not treated as a home that you can invite whoever you like into. There are still this rigmarole of either wearing excessive PPE or, um, or ha- having to see people through windows. You've had, when we were just talking about the 20th of May, got these people sharing stories about how they had to speak to their, mother who had dementia through a window, that's still happening to people today. We've still forgotten about, you know, haven't been able to address the problem with elderly people and how they've been abused throughout the last two years. But there are still things on the statute books that need to be removed. The government hasn't yet, despite Freedom Day and all of that, mm. the government hasn't taken that step to say normality has returned. And so if you end, if you continue in this limbo, what happened, the danger is that you never 
address it, that you never actually say it's over now. And it's always held as a kind of threat over the public that mm. if this returns, or even, you know, some people talking about why don't we use some of the things we've learned over the last two years for flu yeah, or things yeah. like that, that it that you never really are fully free. And that has very real ramifications for people's lives. Yeah, no, I think it's, as Brendan wrote about this on Spike this week, but it's not simply about the, um, it's also not simply about the kind of rules being lifted, you know, or yeah. stopping testing, mass mm. testing, which obviously can, continues to create that kind of sense of, of fear and all the rest of it, or, you know, cutting the isolation days or getting rid of isolation, all the rest of it. I mean, all of that is good and we would like that to happen. But at the same time, there's this issue with the sort of culture, as you were sort of gesturing to earlier, just being completely gone and needing to be kind of rebuilt from the ground up, mm. it feels like. People's kind of confidence in being out in society. I mean, we've been expected to, in a sense, just kind of forego our own judgment yeah. and hand that over to the government in all these situations because they didn't trust us to do it for ourselves. Uh, so you had to outsource your own kind of judgment, your own risk assessment, as it were, to officialdom. Um, also, the last two years has just bred a profound suspicion of one another, mm. which is uh, really corrosive to a free society because it's not just about the individual. You also need to kind of trust other individuals. You need to be sort of comfortable in one another's company. We've been encouraged to see each other as vectors of disease really, yeah. for, for so long, threats to our own health and the health of our families. I mean, this is something which is going to take a long time to unwind. And it's something which um, is something that, again, can't just be, it's not just going to sort of snap back, I think is important to say. And then on the other hand, in, as we've already sort of been talking about, you just really hope there'll be some sort of reckoning as well with the sort of political part of this, which is the relationship between sort of expertise and, and politics, which in this, the past couple of weeks, I think it's been really fascinating. Like Carl Hennigan makes this point on Brendan's podcast this week. We talked about, you know, this is probably the first instance in which the government kind of broke the link between the expert advice, the sage advice and, yeah. and the policy. And they were vindicated in doing so. Mm. You know, every other time the government might have been accused of dragging its feet or whatever, but there was still obviously a big wave to deal with. You could always say, well, the projections might have been off, but it was quite serious. You know, SPY-M were predicting what's um, potentially 6,000 daily deaths yeah. of the Omicron wave. You know, we haven't reached 200 for almost a year. Yeah. This is so crazy. And I think it just really demonstrates um, that, again, just how much expertise is not a straightforward proposition. It's subject to groupthink. It's subject to its own political pressures and back covering and all the rest of it. And I think on the, the kind of political side of getting rid of the new normal, if you like, is, is something that left to reckon with that as well. Because surely at this point, we start. most people will start to see the problems that have been clear throughout, but never quite been as glaring until the Omicron wave, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the case that SAGE were essentially, or the modelling um, people in SAGE were saying that the Omicron wave was going to be the worst of the virus yet, despite um, the vaccination programme and the boosters, despite it mm. being inherently milder. Yeah. I mean... And they'll, and they'll say, obviously, this was a projection, not a prediction, course, blah, blah, blah. But anyone who could read those headlines, everyone knew what role yeah. that was playing as far as trying to push the government in a certain direction, whether it was, uh, you know, unthinking or not. It's just obvious to anyone what that Absolutely. The consequence of all of that was. And, and that's only one side of the kind of, um, you know, kind of democratic deficit that has been in, in, in this. And you, you kind of gestured earlier, Ella, to the Coronavirus Act and to this kind of rule by decree as well that we've had throughout this this crisis. I mean... Is there not, there's something there that we have to really challenge as well going forward too? Yeah, because it, we're now in a situation in which if you call something an emergency, you green light the government to be able to take, uh, you know, steps in relation to law, take steps in relation to regulation with very little parliamentary scrutiny, if any, and kind of make it 
it's a it's a way of sort of moral grandstanding and seeking authority within the government that if you say we're dealing with this emergency then it's like it looks like you're really doing something you can mm. see it happening in relation to other aspects of public health whether it be you know rules you know things that we love talking about like rules on smoking rules on obesity and things like that but also in relation to the um, supposed emergency of the climate emergency you know and and means through which government will bypass any kind of democratic engagement to to tackle the emergency of the world ending. And so you can see how it's going to have various problems, you know, throughout different areas of political life. If you allow the idea of an emergency to completely take over the proper running of politics. But I think the point that Tom makes about, um, and that Brenda makes in his article about the other aspects of how life has changed is really important and isn't often talked about. I mean, I was on a bus the other day and this woman was choking on a bit of her sandwich, just kind of gone down the wrong pipe and was coughing. And everyone on the bus was looking at her horrified Mm. and flinching. And then when I reached over to give her a clap (laughs) on the back and get it out, she flinched. And you just think, Jesus, this is bizarre that we've now, we've gotten to the point where people are still flinching from each other. And the question is, how do you start to change that because it's Tom's right that you know just if Boris Johnson came out and said oh it's freedom day it's all over that wouldn't necessarily have the kind of social effect that you might want it to have all these things are not going to be cured overnight but they also reflect a kind of I think the the pandemic period of the pandemic has been a sort of eye-opener to trends that have been happening for a very long time, kind of atomization throughout society, Mm. people being alienated from each other. Mm. We don't even have to look to like the kind of mask culture in China and stuff like that. There has been a kind of a anti-human trend in relation to the environment and other things of seeing people as sort of icky kind of, you don't want to get into nightclubs with each other, you don't want to do any dangerous Mm. things. And so tackling that, tackling that kind of misanthropy that has fed throughout the pandemic is going to be a real challenge. One, I think that's doable, but it's not going to be, it's not going to happen overnight. And the technocracy as well as the misanthropy, I think, because that's one thing which particularly the kind of elites are taking the pandemic as a great vindication for technocracy, Mm. you know, for rule by expert, which is ridiculous when you think about some of the things we were just talking about, as well as the fact that, you know, the European Union has not made a very good fist of it, shall we say, at various <laughs> different points. But still, you know, the yeah. narrative becomes this. And also you kind of naturally, I think, through this kind of period, you see a sense in which that view starts to get burnished. You know, these these YouGov Guardian polls that they've been running for a few years asking countries across Europe, you know, how much do you believe that the will of the people should be the sort of main principle in a democracy or whatever? Um, and they're seeing it sort of start to decline. You feel like, again, also just any of that kind of insurgent energy has just had the life sapped out of it. And particularly in the UK, you know, the the one kind of big electoral vehicle for it in the form of Boris Johnson's Conservatives has kind of collapsed mm. under the weight of its own, you know, bullshit at this point. So that's going to be the other thing, I think, is just trying to rebuild that very positive, uh, very exciting sort of democratic mood that was really kind of reaching an interesting point before the pandemic, before everyone got locked in their houses and away <laughs> from one another. So that's going to be another thing that'd be worth reviving, definitely. So new emails have emerged this week that have reignited the debate on the origins of of COVID-19. Now, the so-called lab leak theory, this idea that COVID may have emerged from a lab, possibly accidentally, rather than from an animal source, has always been controversial. Um, It's been talked about as a conspiracy theory. It's been suppressed by big tech. But now we know that a lot of top scientists actually gave it a lot more credence in private than they did in public. And it seems as if there were political reasons potentially for 
poo-pooing it. Mm. Tom, what have you made of this? No, so Matt Ridley wrote about this on Spike for us this week um, and also has a, a great book that he's co-authored out called Viral about this whole lab leak saga. But it's just so fascinating. So these emails have been re- uncovered by these kind of Republican congressmen in America between various leading scientists, Jeremy Farrah and the Wellcome Trust um, and various others back in, what, February 2020, mm. just talking about how they thought it was quite a high probability that this could have come from a lab because of its particular qualities and all the rest of it. And yet, as um, Matt points out, a month later, some of these guys are signing this letter in The Lancet condemning the very thing they said was probable a month earlier as a contemptible conspiracy theory. Mm. And as you say, in these emails, just talking about how this could affect international harmony was one of the lines um, from one US official of discussions about this could harm science in general and science in China in particular. Um, and, you know, it's just a general concern that this, if this was be able to talk about openly, yeah. that it would have some sort of horrendous impact and all the rest of it. And it just, again, talking all the things we've been talking about, you know, throughout the pandemic, we've heard so much about the science. Um, you have various scientific and official institutions kind of really claiming that mantle as just the kind of ultimate unbiased arbiters of what needs to be done. But it's just a perfect demonstration about how even these people are subject to these political pressures. Yeah. Um, and it's just made perfectly clear in this particular kind of trove of emails that's been uncovered. Ella. The kind of irony of it is that one of the scariest things throughout the pandemic was this idea that the way in which the virus had come to pose us such a threat was kind of, uh, you couldn't understand it. And it was this almost like fatalistic thing that it had happened through some kind of force of nature, even through animals or some kind of genetic mutation or whatever. Mm. And that this idea that it was just going to happen again, it was just going to become part of our lives. That was the kind of thing that freaked <laughs> me out most was that there was not going to be any end to this. And when you There's look a bat at and the, a pangolin this time. Yeah, it'll yeah be, and it'll know, be some other kind of combination next time. mouse and a kangaroo time. next time, whatever. Yeah, and forever and ever and ever. And actually, if if they if the scientists really thought this and thought that it was a mistake, that's actually much more reassuring because you just think, right? Well, we need better lab security. This is if this is a human mistake, you can do yeah. put things in place to fix it and also prevent it next time. And this potential, you know, obviously the pandemic had the consequences it had, and I'm not um, suggesting that necessarily the deaths would have been any less if scientists had been more open. But it would have we would have at least been able to contextualize it and understand what was really going on. It's also the most unscientific anti-science thing to do and a danger to the credibility of science to do cover-ups because the whole way in which science and scientists have their authority is that they are telling the truth. They are you know, explaining the world to those of us who don't get it, uh, you know, in ways that are truthful and the ways that are based on fact. And so if you have kind of a political um, sort of distortion of that trust and that relationship, that has really bad Mm. ramifications for the future of science. One of the things that we've talked about several times on this podcast is the reasons why a particular form of anti-vax sentiment has come about. You know, we've kind of mused about why it is that people have gone to such extremes or even actually why it is that people who are, you know, reasonable are being, are expressing sort of relatively anti-science views about the nature of the vaccine. And, you know, all of that comes from a mistrust of science, which doesn't just fall out of the sky and not, and not all of it is necessarily unfounded in fact. And if you have top scientists now being revealed to have playing sort of geopolitics with the truth and um, and actually jumping the gun and, and assuming that publics can't handle the truth, 
that's one way of conspiracy yeah. theories to there's, be there's actually a bit of a, more founded. There's a bit of a pipeline, as well, I'm sure people have noticed this, between people who got really into lab leak quite early and the kind of anti vax yeah. stuff. You know, and you you know, you, you kind of sense in which they were vindicated on this one, which as most people have conceded now is, is a plausible explanation. You know, we may never know really where yeah. this thing came from, but still lab leak is one thing where that then kind of urges them on to other things because they told us this was a conspiracy theory explicitly. It's a conspiracy mm. theory. It's what yeah, people yeah. were told. You couldn't post about it on Facebook. You know, the spread of this was suppressed. Really serious mm. stuff. Um, and it gets people's minds wondering, you know, what else <laughs> they might be covering up. So it just entirely backfires, you know, yeah. definitely. And there's been some very prominent sort of public figures, YouTubers, you know, broadcasters already, I'm not going to name any names, who started on one and then moved to the other very obviously. And I think there's definitely something in that. Yeah, definitely. And you've hinted at the other aspects of this. It wasn't just, you know, high profile scientists who tried to quash this theory. It was, it was big tech. Mm. And this has been one of the big kind of censorship scandals of the past few years where we saw, you know, big tech change its mind on whether it's plausible in line with the views of the president of the United States, mm. this time happening to be Joe Biden, a favourable president, <laughs> unlike Donald Trump, who they kicked off. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. You had Facebook banning people for something like 30 days if they mentioned the lab link. You had, you know, everyone knows that you couldn't move for using the word COVID or something like that for Twitter and YouTube or anything to slap a warning on you. Um, you know, it wasn't just big tech. You had, you know, large newspapers like The Guardian and others publishing stories that said anyone who talks about the lab leak is a liar and is this is, you know, is a conspiracy theorist and this is terrible. Shut up about it. Yeah. Don't talk about it. And so there was a kind of justification then for big tech censorship because it seemed like the whole world had agreed that this was something that wasn't to be talked about. Um, and as we know, what happens with big tech censorship is not that it fixes all the problems and everyone suddenly thinks the right thing, but actually that the, that, you know, in this case, actually, it wasn't a conspiracy theory. It turns out that it's something that could be founded in truth. But those kind of underground theories pr proliferate. Yeah. So the the sort of idea that big tech censorship is, as we've said so many times on this podcast, is some kind of um, a salve or the right way to go mm. about ensuring that society has the right kind of views never works even in practice. It's, it's also quite clearly, like, in some respects, like state censorship by proxy now, you know, yeah. so clear, or at least officialdom. I mean, you know, you had at the beginning of the pandemic, Facebook and YouTube and all these other ones basically defer either to national health authorities, to the governments, to the World Health Organization, um, and basically anything that went against their, you know, guidelines or information would be taken down. You know, the early on in the pandemic, Facebook was taking down events for um for kind of anti-lockdown protests or just protests full stop, I think, in line with particular states' kind of social distancing rules yeah. and stuff, which, again, a lot of kind of civil libertarians kind of raise the alarm about because, again, you have this kind of weird hand-in-glove mm. relationship between um, state and big tech. I think particularly in the last couple of years with the pandemic as well as some of the other kind of Trump-related stuff, the sort of fusion between very powerful people in politics and big tech censorship, you know, that's, that relationship has become incredibly cosy. It's not to say it's coordinated. It's not to say someone presses a button yeah. and all the rest of it. You, in many cases, it's big tech kind of going to these organizations and saying, tell us what we need to do. But, um, that relationship is really, really dodgy. And I think it does give the lie to the idea that this is just a simple thing about these private companies making these particular decisions. It's a lot more complicated than that at this point. I think. Definitely. So is it racist? to call a black person eloquent. Cambridge professor Priyam Vadagopal says that this is a way of dismissing the views of um, black people. Tom, you've written about this, this, this mm. quite funny um, conflagration. Do you want to describe it? Yeah, so um, Dr Gopal, 
um, as she likes to be referred to, <laughs> which is there's a story in that. Um, who's this sort of professor of postcolonial studies at Cambridge has become like a bit of a kind of phenomenon mm. online as someone who is often kind of indistinguishable from a parody account. I think it's fair to say. And this is her kind of latest comment, which is that, as you say, it's um, sort of a microaggression, I yeah. guess, in the lingo to um, refer to a black person as eloquent. It was in response to a piece in the Telegraph by one of her colleagues at Cambridge called David Abalafia, who's a historian, and it was about the Colston Four um, and the uh, acquittal that we talked about in the podcast last week. Um, and at one point he referred to David Olshoga, who's uh, also a historian who gave this kind of expert testimony at the trial, and he said he was eloquent. So first of all, Dr. Gopal just wanted to <laughs> criticise the article itself, but then again just found a way to basically imply it was racist. It, again, as you're saying, it was a kind of way of saying, you know, what you're saying is very impassioned and all the rest of it, but it's still, you know, now, not now, serious. There, there. Exactly that kind of thing. <laughs> And it's just part of this weird subgenre, I think, of um, <laughs> of sort of woke anti-racism, which is trying to suggest that even uh, complementing ethnic minorities as a form of racism is yeah. a really sort of wacky end of it. Um, but at the same time, I think it's you know in the in the full Dr. Gopal, we see that you know often when you talk about these ideas, these kind of quite balmy identitarian concepts, people kind of say, well, who actually believes that? Professors at Cambridge University, mm. it turns out. So a silly little story, but revealing in some respects, I guess. Ella. That's the, I mean, that's the funny and depressing thing is that I was trying to go back through Dr. Gopal's tweets to find the original one that was talking about her use, you know, the use of the word eloquent. And it was taking me a very long time. And it's a story that's only just happened. There's reams and reams and reams of tweets from her about so-and-so said this about me in the tabloid press and blah, blah, blah. This person did this. And you do think, how is it okay that this Cambridge Don is spending this much time on Twitter <laughs> talking about herself? And the it, it's the reason why it is important is because Dr. Gopal has been here before in relation to controversies around microaggressions or claims of racism. I mean, as you joked about initially, Tom, mm. infamously, she claimed that porters at Cambridge were racist because they were calling her madam yeah. rather than Dr. Gopal and that this was an expression of, you know, the, the fact that the help couldn't even address you properly. <laughs> <laughs> was an expression of white supremacy and yeah. and racism. Um, you know the the she then went on to just about, you know I know this sounds slightly boring but I think it is important. She then went on to later in these all these tweets I was reading say well I didn't call him racist so I wasn't saying that the use of the word eloquent was racist actually but why would you need to call someone racist when they defend a slave trading statue? Mm. So really what she was saying was it wasn't actually the fact that this professor had called David Olashoga eloquent and everyone knows that David Olashoga is eloquent he has loads of television programs <laughs> he you know that's part of his success as a historian who's become popular. Um, but it wasn't that. It was the fact that this professor was criticising Ola Shoga and indeed the Colson Force political position in in wanting to pull down this statue. And it's that kind of slippery nature of, the, of identity politics where everything gets labelled as this sort of slight, as this insult to your yeah. very, you know, the thing that is... Um, you know, part of your, an unmovable part of your identity, your skin colour, your sex, you know, the way you look, whatever it is, your disability. And actually what they're doing is attacking your politics. And it's cowardly because what she should do is come out and say, I disagree with what you are saying about this statue and I think you're wrong on this. And that's what you would expect Cambridge professors mm. to do. But no, it has to be on the level of the kind of personal, which is both degrading for the professor who's been now labelled as a kind of racist, but also degrading for herself and indeed Olashoga because it's a 
suggests that they themselves have no grounds for their position. Yeah, it sounds like a caricature, but it is just, I disagree with you, therefore you're a racist at this mm. point. It's just ridiculous. I mean, especially ridiculous in this case, because there's many people, you know, in possession of access to Google found out very quickly, is that Dr. Gopal herself had referred to Benjamin Zephaniah as eloquent in an article three years ago. It's just utterly ridiculous. But it is just one of those things, I think, which just sort of demonstrate how much this, what can feel like quite a ridiculous ideology has just permeated even our highest institutions of learning. It's just sort of like second sense to a lot of people now. And that's one of the things that's so depressing about it, especially because what they're pushing is just such a, is as you say, it's very kind of petty and it is just using these things are just sort of cudgels most mm. of the time, you know, um, just to take down people you disagree with. But again, it just shows how much that very divisive, that very sort of racialized sort of outlook really genuinely permeates the intellectual elite at this point. You know, there's a bit of a battle going on about it at Cambridge and elsewhere, but it's still very much in place, definitely. And it's not just a few crazy students. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.